Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. An Erio's Original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. James Shapiro, professor of English and comparative literature specializing in Shakespeare at Columbia University. You'll also remember him as our guest expert on the Astor Place Riot. Let's hear what he has to say about Romeo and Juliet. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward. (laughs) So before we get started talking about Romeo and Juliet. Can you give us a brief background on who Shakespeare was and where he's at in his career at the time that he writes this play? Sure. Shakespeare is born in 1564, and he writes this play in 1594. So he's just really turning uh, 40 years old. And uh, sorry, 30 years old when he's writing this play. The decades pass quickly. And to give you a sense of what this moment was in his writing life, he had been a freelancer, basically a gig worker, collaborating on plays, writing some of his own acting in plays from when he started in the theater in London in 1589 or so until 1592, when a pandemic hit London and shut the theaters for two years. And uh, his great rivals, Marlowe, Kidd, uh, just a half dozen others did not survive the two-year period. And he came out of this and he was asked by a group of 
six or so leading actors who had themselves survived the plague, whether they would join him in forming a new company, The Chamberlain's Men. So Romeo and Juliet was one of the first plays he wrote along with Midsummer Night's Dream after joining this company and after leaving a kind of gig economy and becoming a shareholder in a plane company, which meant he was now management and not labor. Wow, I had no idea he was the only one to survive out of his contemporaries. Well, there were about, you know, there were maybe 15 or 20 playwrights, but let's say he was ranked fifth or sixth in this group in 1592, and everybody ahead of him either quit the stage, quit writing theater, because it was obviously uh, like it is today, a business where you're not making money when pandemic closes the playhouses. So yeah, his great rivals were gone and he emerged as the leading playwright uh, on the other side of that pandemic. So the story of, uh, I said the story of Romeo, <laughs> the story like of Romeo and Juliet is not original to Shakespeare. It's, it's based on a poem by the English poet, Arthur Brooke and, which, who based that poem off of an Italian writer, uh, Matteo Bendello. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of this story? And did audiences know this story? How did, how did a, Shakespeare make it his own? Yeah, that's a great question, or a series of questions. Shakespeare did not make up his plots. He did what we would say in the housing business uh, – uh, were gut renovations of existing structures. <laughs> so you come to a good story or even an old play like Hamlet or Lear and say, you know, I could do this better. I could do this different. I'll stick in some soliloquies. I'll take out these boring bits. I'll restructure it. My language is better than a language that was original to it. And he loved this poem of Romeo and Juliet, had drawn on it in earlier plays. And this time he said, you know what, I'm going to turn this poem into a play. And at this point he's written, you know, 10, 12 plays. He knows how to do it. And uh, there was obviously pressure on him as a member of this company, the Chamberlain's Men, to knock it out of the park, bring in, bring back audiences in this post-pandemic world. And... uh, the story must have appealed to him because we know he had read it before and drawn on it before. And uh, he just takes it and runs with it and creates uh, a really brilliant, timeless play that now junior high school students around the world are forced to uh, take exams on. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Shakespeare. I mean, I, I read this play in... in uh, Midwood High School's annex in Brooklyn in uh, 1970 or so, hated it, didn't get the dirty bits, and swore never to take a Shakespeare class again, and never did, uh, (laughs) because my first experience with it was so terrible. I think we all have similar experiences with Shakespeare until we really dive in, um, until we have uh, professors who are excited about it and can explain to us what, what the context, I think the context of it is so important. Um, can, can we start talking about the play and uh, right from the beginning in the, in the prologue, we're told exactly what's going to happen. Why does Shakespeare choose to do that? Um, from my understanding, it's not something he does in many of his plays. 
Two households both like a dignity, you know, that famous speech only appears in some early versions of the play, but not, let's say, in the first folio. Mm. And what's critical about that is those lines suggest that these are star-crossed lovers, which is putting the blame on fate, on something outside of human agency. But if you're reading or staging a version that doesn't have this prologue, then that changes the arrow of blame considerably. So you get to choose which version of the play you want, an early printed version in 1599 or so, or the 1623 folio. They're not identical. They tell slightly different stories. So... You shared with us that when teaching Romeo and Juliet, you always start off by asking the question, who is to blame? I mean, bravo. That is yeah. our kind of class. Um, I love that because a fight usually breaks <laughs> out and people get really, really invested and start shouting at each other, which is just the kind of class I like. <laughs> so how, how has that changed over the years? Uh, you know, in the old days, it used to be half the class would say it was Romeo's fault and half the class would say it's Juliet. So maybe you'd have an outlier saying it's the nurse. But over the years, the minor characters have become the prime suspects. Mm. So don't tell us who you think is to blame just yet. But I want to know why it's such an important aspect of the play. About a hundred years ago, when critics talked about this play, they couldn't decide whether it was a play that was a tragedy of character or a tragedy of fate. And if it's about fate, then it's about forces outside of ourselves. And if it's about character, then somebody's to blame. And they went through the business of pointing a finger at each character in turn. So the question I'm asking in my classes nowadays and have for the last couple of decades, uh, is not original to me. And uh, people are invested in this because we see ourselves in this play and we see our life and young love in this play. And when things go bad, somebody or something is to blame. I love that. Um, (laughs) So who we choose is to blame is kind of a reflection on ourselves almost. At, that's why I love asking that question because you, you know, you you can't really say to people what, as students, you know, what do you believe in? What do you care about? What's your identity? But as soon as they start arguing about this question, it all comes Ooh. out. <laughs> now let let us discuss blame because uh, may, maybe a good part place to start is by looking at the feud between the Montagues and the Capulets. What's the sure. background on these two families? Beautifully, Shakespeare doesn't tell us what the nature of the feud is about. And that's great. Uh, We just know that it's longstanding and ongoing. One of the, the, the key things for me is that they are both merchant. They're both businessmen. So Juliet and Romeo are both kids who grow up in houses dominated by money, money, money. Mm. And, you know, when we were taught to play in, in, in 10th grade, we were taught that Juliet's mother is named Lady Capulet. She was not. It was only in the 18th century that editors kind of upgraded her to lady, to an aristocratic status. 
there are aristocrats in this play, the Prince, Mercutio, uh, and uh, Juliet's unsuccessful uh, wooer, Paris. But everybody else in the class is just merchant class, middling class, bourgeois, and they want to move up scale, and their values are money-driven. So that's really important, and we'll probably return to that later. But that that's really uh, at the heart of the play. Wow. I, I, I have to be honest with you. I didn't realize Mercutio was higher class than Romeo. Because we're not taught that because it's not shown in staging. But if you knew the play, everybody knows he's kind of slumming with these lower class characters. And he's related to the prince as distantly is uh, County Paris. But everybody else is middling class or servant class in this play. And when, when Romeo looks at Juliet and, and speaks of her as uh, a jewel or say he would adventure for her, you get the sense of how growing up in a, in a household where money, money, money was all that mattered. He has soaked up these values. Oh, so that really changes my perspective on Mercu- Mercutio, really, because it almost feels like he's toying with these uh, lower class uh, people. It, it just changes my idea of him. It, it does. Um, it's not like he's hanging out with the prince or County Paris. They're his friends, they're his buddies, even if they are of lower social station than he is. But, you know, there's no way around that he's, he's slumming in this play. Mm. So Juliet is, is 13 in the play, and her age has always been very jarring to me. Um, yet many of us kind of assume that that's just how young people got married back then. Is that assumption correct? Well, let me ask you how old you think young men and young women were, because that's the, the second question I asked in my class once I get everybody to return to their seats and <laughs> promise that they won't be violent. How old do you think young men were in Shakespeare's day when they got married? Well, I, I honestly thought that 18 was like, you know, you started getting married at 18. But I, I have to be honest, I've read that it might have been older. You know, I ask this question, and it gets trickier to ask each year as some people start going down to like eight or nine <laughs> Uh, and I, I kind of don't want to go there in a modern college classroom. The the answer that social historians of Elizabethan England would tell you is young men and young women did not marry in Shakespeare's day in England until they were 24, 25 on the average. That's that's pretty like we're still doing that. <laughs> that hasn't really changed. <laughs> Absolutely. And the reason why they did that, why they delayed marriage was because they had to be economically self-sufficient mm. to be able to afford the equivalent of an overpriced one-bedroom in the village. And uh, their parents probably died in the mid-40s, so they would inherit a house or some money at that time. Mm. So the next question I ask my students when teaching Romeo and Juliet is, okay, if people didn't marry till they were 24, 25, um, and they reach sexual maturity at 14, what do they do for 10 years? <laughs> Great question. Um, go to the, I don't know, mess around. Go to masquerade. Yeah, you can, <laughs> you can mess around. You could, you know, uh, sidle up to 
barnyard animals, I suppose. You could have non-procreative sex. But we know illegitimacy rates were like 3% or less. So people were not having ordinary procreative sex at that time. And it was really pent up energy. So the fighting in this play and the young men always kind of spilling over into feuding and fighting is built into a system of the frustrations that go along with delayed marriage and delayed sexual activity. Shakespeare is completely aware of that, but he's still telling a story of young lovers that is completely different than the reality of his own uh, Elizabethan era. So why does he choose to make Juliet 13? Well, the story that he inherited had her at that age, and there's something to be said for young love before we get jaded. And Mm. that is what is extraordinary about Romeo and Juliet, that first love. And all of us, I hope all of us, uh, except the incel crowd listening in, have had the experience of first love and treasure it for many, many years after. There's something pure about it. There's something extraordinary. And from a writer's perspective, being able to give voice to young lovers, uh, finding themselves overwhelmed with the emotion of falling in love is, is, was a great challenge for Shakespeare and the play he left us is a great gift to that. Now, we need to talk about Friar John. He's the character that, he's a character we know nothing about and yet he enters, uh, I, th- I believe it's act four, and he just drops this bombshell of information that he didn't deliver the letter to Romeo uh, and that he's been quarantining. I, again, this feels like very topical based on what you're saying, that the plague had just happened over there, and now we're going through this, you know, same situation. Um, was it? To- of course, it was topical back then, and how did the people react, audiences react to this part? Well, you know, it's a really good question. Friar Lawrence is going to solve the problem by giving Friar John, his buddy, a letter to carry to Romeo in Mantua, telling him, I've got this, everything's cool, let me explain what's going on with Juliet and her sleeping potion and all that bit, and Romeo and Juliet can live happily ever after. But Friar John along the way gets stopped, and somebody thinks he's entered an infected house, and he is quarantined for an extended period. And in Shakespeare's day, quarantine meant being locked in a house for 28 days with the doors barred and a guard put outside and written on the door a warning in red paint, Lord have mercy. So this was no small thing. Everybody in London would have known exactly what Friar John was experiencing. And he comes back with the letter in hand undelivered. So in a way, Friar John is responsible for the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. Had he lied about being uh, exposed to the virus, uh, well, it wasn't a virus, it was much worse, it was plague, um, and insisted on delivering the letter, uh, there never would have been a tragedy. He's, He's suspect number one. Ooh, suspect number one, I love that. And fr- but what about Friar Lawrence? I mean, he's to me is a very divisive character. Suspect number two. What is his? What is he doing meddling with? <laughs> you know, he's a friar. He should just 
develop his little flock and work with his medicines. But he tries to solve social and political problems that are bigger than he is, makes more of a mess of it than he should. And um, a lot of my students increasingly blame him, that meddling friar, for what happens to Romeo and Juliet. Because if he had never gotten involved as he did and tried to solve the problem of the feud by marrying Romeo and Juliet, uh, this never would have happened. He really irks me. His poor planning skills are are yeah, just drive me up the up the wall. Um, He's one of those people we we speak of as um, sometimes <laughs> wrong, but never in doubt. Yeah. So, are, are there any culprits I'm 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 forgetting here? I mean, we. Oh, for sure. We've just begun. The nurse, the nurse, Juliet's nurse, she knows that he's married to Romeo. And yet she says, ah, you know, you had a little fling with him, married Paris. He's a good looking guy. He's got the jinx. He's got the money. You know, uh, he's got class. He's he's the guy. She has the jinx. He has the status, I should say. But um, the nurse could have intervened, could have gone to Juliet's parents and said, look, you got to you got to call us off. She's married. She is absolutely a prime suspect. Uh-huh. Let's call it suspect number three in this chain. Mm. Suspect number four is Juliet's mom. She was forced to marry young. She knows it's a mistake. She's not in a happy marriage. She keeps pushing and pushing. Suspect number five, Juliet's dad who insists not only on marrying his daughter off to a rich guy so that his household, sorry, not to a rich guy. He's the rich guy. County Paris is uh, the young aristocrat who's probably burned through his money and needs to marry a middle-class woman to uh, pay for his rich habits. He's pushing this to raise the family status and he speeds up the date of the wedding, creating that tragedy as well. And for that matter, in all honesty, suspects next in line are Romeo and Juliet himself. Wow. He's impetuous. She's impetuous. He wants things to move too quickly. She wants things to move even faster than that. And uh, each of them, in part, shoulders blame for the tragedy they face together. And if you want to add one more suspect... The prince, Hmm. he sees these households are fighting. He thinks penalizing them early on with a fine is going to just take the uh, steam out of this rivalry. He is not in control. He's not a ruler. Even after he loses his kin, Mercutio, in Act 3, he doesn't understand that he has to step in and be much bolder in putting an end to this. So he's to blame... Tybalt is to blame for potentially for being a hothead, for picking a fight and then killing Mercutio and then being slain by Romeo. And uh, if you want to add one last suspect, it's County Paris, who uh, is marrying Juliet almost surely, not only for her good looks, but for her money, and is all too willing to aggressively push ahead with this, despite her desire not to wed as quickly as uh, he wants her to. So 
blame can be pushed in or pointed at in, in many directions. So in your opinion, finally, if you had to pick one person or perhaps concept that is the most to blame for Romeo and Juliet, in your opinion, who or what would that be? You know, it wouldn't be a character. And the real problem for me is what happens when you grow up in a household that is dominated by money? Mm. And if you look at the end of the play, two things happen. One, Romeo goes to an apothecary and he buys poison from that apothecary. And though he hasn't had a long time to grow up, he's learned one thing. And he tells the apothecary who sold him poison. In my giving you gold, I'm giving you poison. You're not giving me poison at all. He has learned that money has poisoned everything, has created this feud and nurtured it and led to the death he thinks of Juliet at that time. And if you look at the very end of the play, you would think that the surviving parents would have learned something of the deaths of their only children. But what did Montague and Capulet say? I'm going to build a statue in gold for your daughter. Oh, I'm going to build a statue in gold of of your son. Like, have they learned nothing? Is it all about the gold? Oh, I mean, that just... At the end, you know, I had always seen it as a a hopeful ending, but you just changed my perspective on that. I mean, people just never change. They don't change. It's just competition. It's just gold. And I'll I'll try to depress you and your listeners a little bit more. (laughs) Those who post-COVID get to go to Verona or those who have visited in the past or those who go online because they don't believe what I'm about to say. All you have to do is Google Juliet statue in Verona. And one of the saddest and creepiest things that I've ever seen in my life is the statue of Juliet. There's no statue of Romeo. People go there and they walk up to the statue and they cop a feel of Juliet's breast. Mm-hmm. I'm not just talking guys. I'm talking groups of women, couples, People go there and grab onto her in the most disturbing way. And when they're asked why they do this, they say, it brings good luck. (gasps) Nobody's explained to me why that is. But if you go online and look at these pictures, and there are thousands of them, it will depress you. So we've learned nothing from the story of Romeo and Juliet, I'm afraid. She's a victim. (laughs) She is re-victimized every day. Well, on that terribly depressing note, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us again and uh, learning uh, about Romeo and Juliet. Thanks. Great talking with you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. Fact checker, Chris Smith. Hello, everyone. How about that lesson on Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. I just love Jim. I know he wants us to call him Jim, but Dr. Shapiro, I mean... <laughs> I know. He's pretty great, right? I mean, that was just... It, I mean, it, like he makes Shakespeare cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're such nerds. <laughs> how much did you want to be in that class when he was talking about the prompt about how he always asks people who's to blame? Are you, are you kidding? Me? I've been waiting my entire life for that moment. <laughs> like I someone know. actually asking me <laughs> who I think is to blame for real. <laughs> I mean, it was so I, I we're just like so in an, in alignment with Dr. Shapiro. I yeah. feel like he's got the alarmist vibes for sure. percent. <laughs> he, he had his suspects. He ranked his suspects. I mean, incredible. A man and, after your own heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how about him? I mean, let's talk about him t- saying that fate had something to do with it, the prologue. And, and the, the idea that some people take the prologue off, you, you can choose to either use the prologue. We discussed this in our, in our episode. Uh, first of all, I think you need the prologue because I think fate is one of the major things we're talking about. Um, and it's, it, it's interesting how that plays into the, you know, his lineup of, of characters, right? So it's like... Right. Well, it wasn't, it was not in the first folio was what he said. Yeah. So it was added later. And I guess it was to create more ambiguity, whether he was saying whether it was a character play or whether it was a play where you, that was more just sort of like, I guess, a fable, like a character play where you want to blame someone or more of just like a, a, a fable. Well, it's interesting too, because he said that when you have the prologue, 
it makes it seem like something outside of human agency is to blame. And so it's interesting. I think actually for the alarmist purposes, it's kind of fun. We basically decided to strip the prologue away and not blame (laughs) fate because that's not as satisfying as like pinning it on a person. But isn't that life? I, I feel like we're always competing with whether we think that it's all meant to be or fate, you know, whether it is religion for people or spirituality or whatever. Um, and versus like our own actions and like the actions of other people, how they affect us. Um, so I like that we brought that into play, even though if essentially we were like, nah, yeah, <laughs> it's not <Yes>. fate. <laughs> Feels like yeah. a big ones episode. Did you guys ever talk about that? Is there oh, you know, Maria actually has been really wanting to do Romeo and Juliet as a big ones. You should do it. Yeah, maybe we'll even, we have an episode we're recording um, today, later today, so maybe I'll even suggest it for today and we could have like a little companion. Wow, you guys really wing <laughs> it over ones. there, huh? You don't even have your uh, <laughs> oh, topic pick it, for today? It's fast and loose, baby. It's no alarmist, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> you really let yourself, you really let Maria do her thing. <laughs> I try not to, but I, I can't control her. <laughs> so what did you... I know, Amanda, you took a bunch of notes. And so did you, Chris. I took some notes. Uh, well, yeah. Go that, there, Amanda. Oh, well, okay, so the, okay, the crazy thing that I think we should have put up on the board, but it doesn't really make sense, is the sexual tension that yes. uh, Jim was talking about. And that if since people couldn't... Okay, so people weren't getting married to their mid-20s, so they were essentially, like, going to first base with farm animals. Yeah, he threw that in there. Okay. He just very loosely threw that in there. Um, I I didn't want to press because I I had the feeling he would go there. It sucks because as a teenager, I didn't realize that was an option. And now I'm wondering, like... Uh, yeah, I was in the suburbs, but, you know, farms weren't that far out. Like in Suffolk yeah. County, it was like a 40-minute drive. So I'm just sort of like going back over in my head how it, that would have made things different. It's for the best, Chris. <laughs> for sure. So that's even though and I think that's part of the reason why has uh, Jim explained he chose to make them younger so that maybe they didn't have this sort of lurid history with um, <laughs> sexual experience, you know, and so but but I do think like sexual attention, even for a 13 year old and a, however old Romeo is, could we could have put that up on the board. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting point. Yes. yes. Now it makes me think of like all of these other stories, um, you know, the period pieces where we're like, how can someone just marry someone who comes to their door and like proposes marriage and then they're married and then that's it. And that's their courtship and that's her husband forever. But it makes sense if if you've spent 10 years unable to with a with a sheep or something like just. <laughs> A goat or a cow. I'm not that Your I standards know. Not are, that I've ranked them no. or thought Chris! about it. <laughs> Your standards are so low at that point that it's just like the first one that comes through the door. Yeah, you just want a, yeah. a warm human body. I will say also something that I thought about that we did not talk about, which was, and cue our friend Clayton Early, Big C Capitalism. Mm-hmm. He talked about how the two families were both merchant families, so they were all about that green, that sticky green, the 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 big dollars, and uh, also about what was interesting was that Paris and the sort of speediness which with which he wanted to marry Juliet was maybe based on his 
sort lack of, of money, his lack need of for money, the money and yeah. need for, uh, uh, I guess, a dowry or whatever. But I thought that that was fascinating. Yeah. And then also pointing to the end of the play about how they both created uh, a statue for the other family's child was, and, and that and being made of gold, how they totally missed missed the mark with the lesson of the play. Um, I just thought all of that was incredibly intuitive and smart. Yep. And I just capitalism, baby capitalism, man, it's always part of the equation. I had, first of all, that changed my perspective on that clarified why my feelings about Paris, which were very confused. I'm like, why is he, does he want to marry Juliet? I, I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, she's so young. What, what's the rush here? Mm. But if he was in need of money, then that makes a lot of sense. And I had never, I always saw the, the statue moment at the end of the play as like, oh, how nice. Like, they're going to build statues, so we'll remember this. No. They're going to build statues so, they, so they'll compete. Like, yeah. I mean, that, and that was something that totally went over our heads. Like, we totally. didn't even, we put the parents up there, and I think we knew there was some agenda, something not pure about why they were trying to marry Juliet off, but we, we just missed that it was financial. Yeah, I mean, I think he was sort of implying that that could have been a reason why Paris wanted to get married so quickly. So maybe Shakespeare wasn't as explicit in explaining that. But again, like you were talking about, Rebecca, it's so important. Context is so important in these Shakespeare plays because there are differences in the way that just society works. And, and another distinction, another thing was class distinction. They kept He kept talking right. about how Mercutio was sort of of the upper upper class and he was sort of slumming it with these um, merchant kind of middle class or lower class um, people. Yeah. Um, And again, capitalism at play there. There, that must have been so prevalent at that time. The, the classism and the, um, just the, the aspect of, of, of the money that we didn't, it felt like Shakespeare didn't even have to include it almost. Interesting. Like people would have just known, you know, they would have recognized it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think that we, you know, what he was saying was interesting about how it's um, the blame has recently shifted among his students onto Friar Lawrence because people are upset that he's meddling in the affairs of these young people. Um, and he said, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt, which <laughs> it reminds me of this could be an alarmist motto, too. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. You know, when he said that at first, I had to pause because I, 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 I thought I heard him say Dow. And I was like, what's what saying is that? But I'm already, you know me, I'm so bad with sayings that I'm like, oh, I guess I've never heard that. <laughs> it wasn't until he started talking again that I realized he said doubt. <laughs> I see. That explains your kind of lack of reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, uh, exactly, that, that is honestly, that's, I might put that on my gravestone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess for the alarmist, it would be more like usually wrong and always in doubt. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how we usually get through wrong. these. <laughs> I mean, but I think my personal life motto is sometimes wrong, always in doubt. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll, my, never my in person, doubt. Maybe my, mine is my, never in doubt. My personal <laughs> motto is always wrong and loves no doubt. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Chris, I got to give you some props. Sometimes you deserve props. No, don't. Come on. Yeah, you had put up on the board the criminal justice system that <gasps> favors the rich. Oh. And, and uh, Jim brought that up. Uh, in terms of the prince being very lenient with his, mm. um, with his, uh, what do you call it? Uh, punishment at the beginning of the play, like him being like so so easy on them, just giving them a slap on the wrist. Well, if, when he knew that this was a big problem. Well, in 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 uh, the effort to uh, do justice to that um, board notation. I will say that I think that was Natasha who brought that up. And I think I may have just sort of oh. said, I said it louder. Like when you, it's, it's, it's called mansplaining. It's, <laughs> it's basically when you, when you as a man know oh, better yeah, than a, when what a woman says, oh. if you say it louder, then mm. people will respect you. And, okay. um, Interesting. No, but, that was I definitely, thought you had thought of that, but we can check the tapes. We we'll, can go back and we'll check the tapes, and maybe back. one, maybe we can have the alarmy. Uh, they can let us know who brought who brought up that concept. I'm fairly sure it was Natasha. Okay. So give give credit to Natasha for that one. Okay. So yes, thank you for mansplaining that I should give credit to Natasha. <laughs> um. uh, I take full credit. I take full credit for giving credit. Yeah. So do we think that we need to change this verdict based on our conversation with Jim Shapiro? Well, I was thinking already, like, I don't know if we went hard enough on the parents. Mm hmm. That being said, when you look down to the nitty gritty of it, like whose actions directly led to this to this exact outcome, I still like our verdict. I think so, too. Uh, and just to remind everyone, we sent Friar Lawrence to the alarmist jail and we gave the big slap to toxic honor. Right. But and, and with that, so, somehow that does encapsulate the, the money. But I think uh, I think instead of toxic honor, it should be toxic greed. Ooh, OK. I mean, I, and I think that's just greed. Because <laughs> greed is greed toxic. Is to- I mean, greed already has a negative connotation. So I don't even know. I, I mean, maybe it's fun to add toxic onto it. Because, <laughs> well, yeah. What 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 I like about toxic greed is that the idea that both families are one upping each other, right? So it's mm-hmm. not just someone's greed to go get something. It's it's the idea that others are at play, and you're, it's the comparison aspect yeah i mean to me that still sounds like a lot like you're what you're talking about is honor because and and then and then especially if you think about in the last moment when they build gold statues of for the other family it's almost competitive even even in that regard and there's an honor element in the competition isn't there it's like okay well if they're doing it then i'm gonna do it um yeah but i i don't know in honor to me there's a there's a selflessness. I don't know if selflessness is the right word, but there's a, like you can honor someone or something without having money. Right. 
Right. But that's where the toxic comes in. That's where the toxic comes in. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I take your point. I think, um, you know, there was also something before, before we sort of decide on what to give the big slap to. I also just wanted to bring up, and I don't know how exactly to frame this, but he had a list of, I counted, I think around eight people mm-hmm. that he would blame. And he basically went through the entire cast. He went with the friars and then he went down mm-hmm. nurse, the nurse, then yeah, the, the mother, parents. then the, yeah, then the dad, then Romeo, then Juliet, then the prince, then Tybalt. Paris. Tybalt, Mercutio. We, we missed Tybalt. We didn't put we him on the Tybalt. board. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. But, um, and so it makes one wonder if all of these characters are basically could be to blame. Was it just fate? Was it just <laughs> meant to be? And I don't know. So, I think it's capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you could slap the stars. Oh, mm. literally the stars of the play. <laughs> right? Fate, oh, oh. <laughs> well, both. It could be a double, a double meaning. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. What do you, what do we think here? I mean, I, I'm going to stick with Friar Lawrence and I'll tell you why I'm going to stick with, stick with him. Uh, going to jail because I think that like like Jim said who we choose to blame is a reflection on ourselves Mm -hmm. and if you recall my my poor the the scheduling aspect Mm -hmm. the 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 planning uh and and he Jim kind of said this like he, he was like he's a friar he should be doing his own friar things like he shouldn't be planning this uh life or death uh plan mm. or whatever well he sure certainly shouldn't be marrying a 13 year old you no, know what i mean there's a lot he shouldn't be doing and he yeah. shouldn't be taking on the planning of it and you should know your limits no honestly <laughs> if it had been a woman i hate oh, to go geez. there i hate to go there two letters two letters two letters why are you just writing one letter with one friar anyway I, I because because he said that it's a reflect who we choose is a reflection of who we are. I'm going to keep it to Friar Lawrence because I'm sure that says a lot about me. Okay, and, and, and the I show. think that's totally in your wheelhouse, and I think that's correct. And then, like whatever you want to do with the slap, Rebecca, it's I leave it up to you because I'm down for toxic greed, toxic honor, or Chris's idea of slapping the stars. <laughs> I, I get the stars, Chris. I get it. But I think that I think we have to slap capitalism oh. or on this one. Or uh, toxic greed. Gonna, uh, I like greed. I kind of like to- greed. toxic greed because yeah. I also for some reason I think of toxic goo when I hear toxic greed. So I think of like oozing green like um, <laughs> nuclear material. I don't know. Okay, cool. Like slime, Nickelodeon slime. Yeah. You're going to get your hand all messy if you slap that thing. <laughs> Toxic all right. Greed. All right. Well, I'm going to call it Toxic Greed. You're getting the big slap. Well, that was fun. Yeah, and was happy fun. Valentine's Day, you two. Yeah. Any big plans coming up? Mm, no. We are in Montreal and it's like <laughs> 20 degrees out right now, and it's going to be about seven on Valentine's Day. But. We are looking into possibly renting cross-country skis 
and going cross country skiing what? in Mount Royal. Yeah, it's sure to not go well. Wow, <laughs> that we'll sounds like video. that sounds like the best way to romance Rebecca. Get her on some cross country skis. Well, put her on a mountain. Know, as long as the blood is pumping from the heart to those thighs, which are going to be working overtime, we are, we are, those thighs are going to be burning and that's the quickest way to a woman's heart. They say, especially this Miami girl to like put some snow pants on her. (laughs) I want to see you guys in little matching snow suits. (laughs) We'll, we'll make sure to post. Yeah. We'll post something. Yeah. Some photos. Um, well, this has been so fun. I'm so glad anytime, honestly, I want us to do the entire Shakespeare catalog. Um, and we could, and we we could, could. um, so, and we will, and we could, and we will, because we do have a promise to all of our alarmy to make 1 million episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're going to need to fill up the content, fill it with content. You know, that's right. We're going to have to eventually might have to go even go to (laughs) Marlowe. I, mean, I can't I believe he died during the plague. No, he didn't. Oh, no. he didn't. I, no. I misunderstood well, oh, that. No, he didn't. They all didn't die, but some of them sort of like gave it up, right? So it was yeah, just reminding yeah. me of how like some actors and stuff are moving home during this pandemic. And yeah. at the end of it, I'm hoping that us three are the last men standing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they'll be like, Do we need more characters for the Marvel Universe. It's like, well, all the actors gave up. <laughs> we might as well go to the podcast pool. I mean, we're, Shakespeare was like number five on the list. We're we're like in the thousands down the yeah. list. Yeah, yeah. We got to check our IMDb's uh, our star whatever. meters. Raider, yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, everyone, please tune in next week. We are going to be discussing the Flint water crisis. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.